of the all-time performances by an actor returning to the spotlight has a quote that I think we can all agree with in one of the best, secretly one of the best LA movies you will see. And uh, the line goes, I'm 56 years old. I can't blame anybody for anything I do. And in a movie full of quotes, uh, there's plenty of hidden gems. And the movie here, of course, is Jackie Brown, a movie based off an Elmore Leonard novel that one might be one of Quentin Tarantino's finest movies. I think it's his best, but also is a, a sneaky, good kind of little social commentary mix, a, a, a lesson in filmmaking, an all around classic movie. I can't get enough of it. It is my favorite movie. I totally did not do it justice with my intro, but <laughs> here to do it some justice is Andrew Martinez, if, I, if you uh, remember the name. As crooked as a barrel of snakes, Brian Mancini, uh, to borrow a term, I think Sam Jackson says in the film that really, really took me off guard because I was like, crooked as a barrel. Is that like a, is that like a Last Crusade reference? Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I know we were talking offline about um, movies. I think this initially came up. Uh, this initially came up during a discussion about LA movies. And mm -hmm. I think it, uh, and I said it at the intro, like I really think this is kind of a sneaky good LA movie. The movie, um, and you know, we'll go blow by blow here, but the movie is pure LA. It, it, there is no you know, cuts, there might be a cut scene. I'm gonna mistake myself, but the, every scene is shot in LA. There is no like the characters saluting New York for a couple of scenes type stuff. It is an LA movie through and through. It has a fantastic cast. And it's a movie where Sam Jackson and Robert De Niro are uh, not the main characters and uh, don't have, well, I don't want to say they don't have the strongest performances, but their performances were not necessary to carry the movie because uh, the main mm -hmm. actors, um, Pam Greer and Robert Forster, Forster, did an amazing job. Two actors oh, yeah. who were out of the limelight, came back and killed it. And then, of course, you have Michael Keaton being young 90s Michael Keaton. Richard oh, yeah. Fonda is, makes an appearance. Um, it has, a, 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 I guess, a sneaky good cast, too. Uh, Chris Tucker. And uh, it's a movie that totally kind of falls through the cracks when you think of Tarantino. Um, I love this movie, and I only watched it because I saw, you know, those three-pack Walmart DVDs of, like, the Tarantino collection. And I'm just like, yeah, I want Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. What's Jackie Brown? Sounds weird. Like, um, <laughs> is, is this one of his, uh, you know, is this is this one of his, like, was it crappy? Why didn't nobody talk about it? And it ended up being what my fa favorite movie ever. So I have nothing but praise for it. I think it's the hidden Tarantino classic. Uh, it sounded like you had some praise for it, too. I'm going to have to second you as well in terms of, I, I really think this is one of his absolute best movies with me and Tarantino. It's, it's a, it's a love hate relationship. You see, um, because I, I, you know, Pulp Fiction, it's, it's very, it's very solidified when it comes to its status as, you know, a, a classic film, despite the fact that it's not even 30 years old yet. Um, which is weird to think about. It, it, you know, you, when you think of Tarantino, you think of movies like Kill Bill 
Reservoir Dogs, which is still my favorite movie of his. You think of Django Unchained. You think of a lot of his movies that are a little bit more outside the box. Rewatching Jackie Brown, and, you know, this really was my second time watching it. It's it's up there. Like, it it, it has to probably be my second favorite of his films, uh, which, is, you know, I love Inglorious Bastards, but... It's I feel confident putting that at the number three spot and putting Jackie Brown up at number two, because there is so much about this movie that I'm just kind of left wondering, like, how how does this ever miss people's radar when they talk about this guy's filmography? I mean, the cast alone, Robert Forster, like I I, I can't help but gush over him. I, I've loved him and everything he's in. Um, R.I.P. to a legend this movie deserves all the praise it gets. I mean, Sam Jackson alone, this might be my favorite Sam Jackson performance. Surprisingly. Um, he's never thought of it, but yeah, such a good villain. It's, it's one of those things where you watch him. You have perception of him. Like you want to love him. It's Sam Jackson. You know, he's going to call somebody motherfucker at some point, but (laughs) Younger people today love him from the Avengers and Star Wars. And, you know, I, I mainly remember him as the guy who was eaten by a Velociraptor. Um, but he's overly friendly and yet so cold-blooded to the point where he's almost scary as a character. And it it just it resonated with me just watching him being just chewing out the scenery, being his typical self, and yet also just being genuinely just, again, terrifying. And the fact that he stands up toe-to-toe with Robert De Niro, who I don't even know if he really even needed to be in the movie. <laughs> it's weird. It's, I don't know, what, what do you think? It's definitely one of the stranger performances. And the first time I saw this movie, I'm like, what is he doing there? He was <laughs> underutilized, but... Uh, I enjoyed his performance. It's definitely like a fine wine. It's like, um, I have, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's like his best performance or that he was written, you know, exceptionally well, uh, you know, but I, I think his, uh, it's a nice understated performance. And he, uh, you watch the movie for the first hour and a half and you're just like, he's just kind of a bumbling fool. He is not a very useful character, not very entertaining. He doesn't crack jokes. He just kind of... Uh, grumbles and exists and in the, in the last 30 minutes he really picks it up and some robert de niro finally comes out he he's a career criminal and it's in, not until the last 30 minutes that you see maybe the real version of his character come out and you know get violent and not just like you know like oh like he eats people up like he gets really violent and mm-hmm. if you're listening spoiler alert uh well, we'll get there, but uh, it gets really violent, and I think his character arc towards the end saves it. But yeah, a very out of this movie, as much as we're praising it, I think it is definitely peculiar when you watch it, and you're just like, what is he doing? And I actually can't think of, and I'm probably overlooking something, but I can't think of another movie where Sam Jackson and Robert De Niro are are like this. It's not Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, but I mm. don't remember another movie where that they're in together there's still a tremendous amount of star power between the two and and i will say it's in hindsight it's really cool to know that uh tarantino's now worked with both de niro and pacino so that's that's kind of a cool thing that i think 
he ought to be pretty happy with with his resume. Like he's worked with two of the greatest actors of all time. You know, it, it can't be left out. I mean, hell, she's playing the titular character, but Pam Greer is Jackie Brown herself. I mean, somebody that is so no BS, somebody that is strong, somebody that is very just set on the path that she wants for herself. She adds to the whole, I don't know what you'd say, but like the whole atmosphere of the film, especially when it comes down to the fact that it's it's kind of bringing her career forward after, I don't, I don't know how many years she was either not prominent or not featured in films, but it it definitely has a retrospective kind of feel, especially with the soundtrack and, and you know, a lot of the stuff that's talked about in the film. Like, it, it has that kind of nod to a lot of 70s cinema that, you know, had a lot of strong black male and female characters. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, you know, Quentin Tarantino's, uh, I guess, tribute to black exploitation films, you know, mm-hmm. Or you know this, I don't want to go down the 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 art the, the you know discussion of like should Quentin Tarantino use the N word like I, I don't want to start turning it into like questioning yeah. like his motives and things like that. But he really this was a, a tribute uh, definitely through and through. Like I feel like there throughout the movie, um, you do kind of have some of that black exploitation type soundtrack uh, from that genre era of movies. You have the soundtrack Pam Greer obviously who was. Uh, famous for her role in, and I want to make sure I get this right, but uh, Foxy Brown. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. I could say I've never seen it, but I think, you know, Gwen Cernitino does a really good job of like making me feel like the era. Um, Pam Greer does a really good balance of, you know, I wouldn't say campiness, but just uh, having fun with the role. And uh, I, I would say the same for Robert Forster, who, great actor, if you don't know his name, he is definitely underrated. He, I couldn't tell you uh, his famous movies, you know, from from before, because he went through the same period of wasn't in movies for a minute, and then Quentin Tarantino cast him alongside Pam Greer, and uh, it is kind of a strange pairing. Uh, Pam Greer, I, I guess they are closer to age than they might appear. Uh, I think there's definitely like a bigger age age gap there, and I guess they're the romantic interest, sort of. And uh, but Robert Forster, he just has a really strong performance. Is like Mr. Cool and calm, and he, I guess, is attracted. I wouldn't know falling in love, but is attracted to Pam Greer and mm-hmm. helps her with the plot, with the plan. The relationship is really good. The the back and forth, and uh, you know, the ending. You might feel away. We'll get to the ending, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, it does, it's, uh, the relationship is handled very well, written very well, and sometimes I think maybe that's why this movie was so good, because <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, uh, well, I guess he adopted the screen, uh, adopted it for a movie, but it's based on a novel, and it seems to be, I think, his only um, work based, you know, off of a novel, so, um, yeah, just nice performances and very well written. I think that's what works better in this movie compared with something like Pulp Fiction, where, you know, maybe it's just because of the fact that the dialogue in Pulp Fiction has become so much a part of the zeitgeist. Mm, you know, yeah. like, I, I, like there's been enough times where I've either heard it elsewhere or I've made the joke about, you know, what's a 
quarter pounder called in France. Um, yeah. Or, of course, the great scene with Christopher Walken with the watch. There's so much of that that I'm used to and I've heard it. Whereas with Jackie Brown, I mean, it's hard for me to find anything quotable. But the dialogue is hitting at you, is hitting you at 100 miles an hour, you know, to the point where even though there's a lot of these characters in this film that you, you kind of want to feel a little bit like, eh, I, don't, I don't know if I'd be on their side. You still do because they have such an economy of lines that they provide. I mean, I, I obviously I got to bring up Michael Keaton showing up or, or as I described it in my notes, um, he Batman his way into the movie because when he shows up, it really is like out of the shadows. Hey, are you Jackie Brown? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. It's, such a pure Michael Keaton performance. Like, it's almost self-parody, I feel. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. With his role. Uh, fun fact, too, I should note, with his role, this movie technically has, I don't know if you'd call it a spinoff or a sequel, where Keaton plays this exact same character. I've heard of this, but uh, not never saw it. It's the 1980, excuse me. 1998 film Out of Sight, directed by Steven Soderbergh, which is also based on a Elmore Leonard novel uh, starring George Clooney uh, and right, produced yeah. by Danny DeVito. So that means you've got two Batman <laughs> and the Penguin working on this movie. Huh. What a, what a cosmic coincidence, as they say. Yeah. And I remember hearing about that years ago. Apparently Sam Jackson's in that movie, too. What? Huh. And Ving Rhames. Oh, my God. That's that's a rabbit hole. Um, Maybe that's what we need to talk about next time. But, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> what what's up with all these? I guess in, in a year of big movies, I guess it's understandable that this gets a lot more in a year. It gets in a, in a couple years stretch. Uh, it's almost like a golden age of movies that, of course, like a gem like this falls through the cracks. So maybe that explains some of it. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and on top of that, too, I, I got a bit of a laugh when um, the credits are rolling at the beginning. And one of the people that got credited for casting is somebody by the name of, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation because I, I, I don't know if it's pronounced the regular way or a different way, but somebody by the name of Jackie Brown was involved with the casting <laughs> or, or Jockey Brown. One, one, it's J-A-K-I. And it threw me off because I'm like, well, wait a minute. Or, or doing my Keaton. Uh, 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 wait a minute say that again what <laughs> um so. pretty good uh, um yeah i i just see it here yeah jackie brown that's funny i never caught that if listeners don't know enough about the film or, or haven't heard of it i mean number one once again pause this podcast and go watch the movie it's on hbo max right now for crying out loud along with malignant but um but <laughs> I don't really know what you would call it. And it's not a heist movie necessarily, but you just don't get movies like this where there's so much gray with all the characters. And I, I briefly talked about this earlier. There's so much gray with all the characters and yet you're invested in every single one. And I think some of it does rely on the star power rather than the writing of a character like, like Lewis Guerra. Like you, you don't, feel for his character other than the fact that it's Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton's character. Like you don't want to necessarily like an ATF agent, but it's Michael Keaton. So it, it, it works out in that you're, you're so invested with everybody 
and it just makes the movie what it is. And of course, I mean, seeing Chris Tucker is always a good laugh, you know, a couple years after Friday, several years before he was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane with Bill Clinton and Kevin Spacey. Um, that's not a conspiracy theory. I should know that's been reported on elsewhere. Hence why you don't see a lot of Chris Tucker these days. I'm curious though. What, what is it about this movie that, that has it up there as one of your favorites? Yeah. So, I mean, not only from the get go, like, does it really draw you in? Like with, uh, it's a, it's a perfect mix of the Tarantino dialogue, but again, a strong source material, the cast keeps you enthralled. But for me, uh, a lot of it too is, uh, just, the vibe of the movie, I think the, the tone, I think it strikes a really nice balance between like this tribute to the, no, I won't even say black expectation, just like the tribute to kind of the seventies era, the music I think is kind of a big draw. Uh, I love them. I, I knew I was going to like the movie from like the opening scene where she's on the airport and I, I assume it's LAX, but she's on the long, um, what are the name of those things that like you, it takes it, you just stand there and it takes you across the whole terminal. So, and it's a nice long drawn intro. Don't think it's one shot, but it just kind of follows her for the course of the song. And the song is like the theme song for this 70s black exploitation film called like Across Across 110th Street. And it's like really <laughs> catchy and it really kind of sucks you in. It's like a nice mysterious kind of intro. And uh, from that point, I was like sold. So like music, the vibe like there's still certain scenes it's not i wouldn't say it's a cinematography cinematography masterpiece but there's a few shots that i'm just like that makes me want to go back to la and just like go to like some of the places they went like for instance uh, jackie brown i guess a, a quick kind of plot update here um, mm -hmm. and all imd kind of does it best so i'll just go off of here but uh, a flight of uh, pam greer's jackie brown a flight attendant uh she uh the fbi I guess of Michael Keaton's character, so the authorities um, say, "Hey, you're smuggling. Uh, you participate, work with us. Tell us who you're working with." And uh, she's working with Samuel Jackson's character, and he is some type of uh, arms dealer, Ordell mm -hmm. Roby. She's under pressure to work with the authorities to cap ca to catch him, and he's as shady as they come. So they. She's playing the cops against Sam Jackson. Um, Max Cherry, Robert Forster's character, is a bail bondsman who gets involved when Sam Jackson tries to bail out Chris Tucker, one of his associates. So Max Cherry gets involved in all of this. And it's really just kind of a big race for this big pot of money. It's um, a half a million dollars. So you have Michael Keaton and uh, his partner, who's also noticeable face in the movie, um, chasing after the money. You have Sam Jackson trying to protect his money and you have Max Cherry trying to help Jackie Brown, you know, get away from this cleanly. It's a, it's a, it's a, so in that sense, it's a really good mystery movie, but yeah, I have to say just the vibe of the movie. There's so going back to, you know, why I like the movie. There's a scene early on in the movie where she goes to jail. Michael Keaton says, well, if you're not going to talk to us, you're going to jail. Samuel Jackson bonds her out. Cause he's like, you're my, my money runner. Um, would you tell the cops? But after she gets out of jail, she's just like, oh, like I want to go get a drink. And they go to this bar and I, I've looked it up. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's in, <laughs> might be in Torrance, maybe uh, out there in that direction. Actually, I wonder if uh, our friend Kenneth would kind of know the area more, but bar that's been long gone, but the bar, they go to the bar 
and like they get some a cocktail and like the bar is just like in this sea of red or you know it's red lighting it's really moody there's really good music on in the background some nice 70s like chill disco it's just like a really good vibe i think <laughs> the vibe has really, really sold me because um early on in the movie you know introduces all the characters and it's a little easy to get lost when they introduce Robert De Niro and you just see him kind of just sitting there and you're just like, where's this going? But um, I think the scenes with the main leads and the music, uh, that 70s vibe really sucked me in. It, it is very attractive to see so much of the, the retro elements within the film, but also I think, and this kind of ties into the one thing I noticed with the film that goes back to our discussion about LA set movies where it is so very timeless, much like Los Angeles. Like, clearly this is in the 90s, but this story and the setting could really be at any point in the last over a half century of the city's history. And yet, I do actually enjoy the fact that it's not too on the nose with L.A. as a backdrop. You know, it's it's not like, I have to bring it up, but it's not like Nightcrawler where it's so boink on the nose do you get it it's la it's dark and sexy oh do you get it it's not like that at all and i i actually that's something i actually really appreciate with this movie is number one la is just a background it's not meant to be a character in its own right but also it's tying it in with other you know other areas in socal like compton and it's again it's it's trying to make the focus more on the characters and their actions rather than making the scenery feel like it's a character in of itself. If anything, the character is, uh, the background is an accessory. It's, it's window dressing. It's cementing the time period and cementing the, um, you know, it, it's just cementing that, this could be the kind of thing you could expect in SoCal back in 1995 or really any at any point. And it just adds, I think, to the, the timelessness of the movie. Plus, I, I got to say, and I, I know you hinted on it earlier, but cinematography in the movie, I'm such a sucker for that. The vibrant colors and the film grain and this mishmash of things that I love to see was so prominent in this film that I, it actually helped me in loving it a lot more than I previously did, you know, okay. like, yeah, yeah, like it's, and, and I should note too, the cinematographer, um, Guillermo Navarro, he's done a whole bunch of other huge films where he's been cinematographer, including Hellboy night at the museum. And as well as another movie from this time period that I absolutely love Desperado. Okay. And, yeah. and he also did from dust till dawn Spy Kids, uh, Stuart Little, which I thought was kind of curious but interesting, as well as Pan's Labyrinth. So he, this, the guy who did the cinematography, and plus, obviously, when you've got somebody like Tarantino working with you, and he has the vision to, you know, have shots be situated in a certain way, and and frankly, in a certain way that I've grown to enjoy, just because I, I. Maybe it's less so with his newer films, but with his older films, his shots 
feel specific on purpose. One, one of course, that stood out that every Tarantino person probably has talked about a thousand times over is when you get that close-up of Robert De Niro's scotch and there's Melanie's feet right next to it. And you're like, oh, God, here we go. Here, Here's the feet. Um, yeah, I never realized <laughs> that until, yeah, um, of course. I, uh, I I do have to say, though, I, I am really glad you kind of made that point about the cinematography is just that you kind of just reminded me, like, yeah, cinematography is not just, like, a cool shot of, like, the silhouette of the main character in the shadow mm-hmm. of, like, the, the sun rising in L.A. or something like that. It's, like, everything all together. So I guess I am kind of stand corrected when I say that it's not a cinematography masterpiece. I mean, I yeah, again, I, I did not, like, that's not the number one reason I like this movie. I'll say put it that way. But, mm-hmm. um yeah, the vibe, I guess. <laughs> well, I guess my unfilm educated way to describe the vibe is that. So, yes, thank you for <laughs> opening my eyes there. Such a strange movie to me just because this is one of those times where, you know, again, I like I said repeatedly, I saw it once years ago, didn't like it. And yet the enthusiasm I had going into it this time, I, I don't know if it's if I was like looking for stuff that I really liked or, or what, but it, it was just like, th- there was a part of me after the movie ended where I was like, damn, I want to spend more time with these characters and not so much like in a sequel, but if the movie's already two and a half hours long, I just had that sense of like, I, you know, I want to see more of, uh, you know, tiny Lister's character because he's in the film and I didn't feel like I got enough of him. Not that I, Probably needed more of him, but I like Tiny Lister. What can I say? Um, mm-hmm. Again, it just it just does such a good job at making these characters feel raw and real, but at the same time, giving you a sense of of tension, giving you a sense of purpose for why Jackie's trying to get out from under, you know, Odell's Odell's watch. I'm glad they didn't fall that Tarantino didn't fall on any tropes of like you know, Ordell getting arrested or, you know, he gets questioned by uh, Ray Nicolette and the LAPD guy. Like, none of that happens. And he's, you know, Sam Jackson's doing his best to just be on the fringes away from anybody that would want to question him or basically put him behind bars. And, And just he's just that elusive that law enforcement can find the bodies of those he's killed. I think that adds more to his character and why I said I thought this was one of his best roles because he's just that evil and that clever that he's actually that far ahead from uh, from the cops. Yeah, and not just any cops. It's like the literal, well, in the movie, the FBI, ATF. So, like, he's pretty hardcore. Like, I'm sure if this was modern day, <laughs> two years later, enemy of the state, like, of course he would have been nabbed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he is very elusive. You do get a sense that in the beginning, like the first shot is you see him on the sofa. I don't know if he's getting high, but he's hanging out, kind of just bumming it around with uh, Robert De Niro's character. And uh, you think like this guy is the big time criminal and Bridget Fonda, who's his girlfriend who lives at the beach house, even kind of dismisses him. It's just like, ah, oh, he thinks he's a big time. He, like he's not that <laughs> big. But no, I mean, he has the FBI and ATF on him. He is shows no hesitation to kill. Actually, early on in the movie, he kills Chris Tucker for getting apprehended and, you know, not even knowing for sure if he talked or not. And he also attempts to kill 
Jackie Brown. And, you know, she turns it around and starts plotting, but he is a legitimately scary villain. And, you know, I guess hopping around here in that same sense, that's one thing I liked about the movie too, is that uh, it's not so much a subverting of expectations, but it's just like kind of like delivering when Robert De Niro kills um, Bridget Fonda when she's Mm -hmm. too annoying. And, and she was part of the plan too. So it makes it even colder that, you know, he couldn't even as a career criminal, like, you know, he knows that she's a crucial part of the plan and he just, of course, and then he just like leaves her body in a mall parking lot after shooting her. So he did not care. And I thought that was like pretty telling that, you know, no, these guys in the movie, they're not like, they're pretty serious criminals. So I feel like in that sense, the movie did pay off and that there was real, real stakes. The stakes in this film are, are ridiculous. I mean, it, it really looking at the rest of his films following this, it starts to feel formulaic in a way when it comes down to, okay, we've gotten to this point in the movie. When are people going to start getting, you know, axed by one of the main characters or whomever? And, you know, I think with Jackie Brown, it, it does such a good job at just keeping all these characters around. But then, like, once Bridget Fonda's character is taken out in the mall parking lot, it's like, that. that's kind of when you start thinking to yourself. And obviously... Again, having seen the film previously, it was one of those things where you're thinking, okay, so this is where things are going to start wrapping up. Because there are a lot of movies out there where once people start getting axed in a film and it's been over two hours, you're already thinking, okay, now they're going to start killing everybody so that they can get to the end where, you know, two people are still alive. Um, Mm -hmm. Although, thankfully, in this case, it's more than two people. Uh, Thankfully... Keaton makes it out, um, <laughs> but obviously so does Jackie Brown and uh, and Max Cherry, which I, I do have to say, Max Cherry, what a Tarantino name. You know, I, I said it earlier with, uh, I think with Pulp Fiction, but it's so, or not Pulp Fiction, uh, I said it with Nightcrawler with L.A., but it's such a boink on the nose name. But at this point in his career, like, it was fine. It worked. Like, it, it didn't have the va-va-voom or it did have the vava boom that like Vincent Vega or Mr. Pink had in in Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Given the fact that this movie has has resurfaced a great deal more as being one of his better films, at least from what I've seen and cert, from certain outlets, do you think some of the the muted response to the film following its release, do you think some of it had to do with the fact that oh it wasn't a bunch of white dudes? running the show like in reservoir dogs or interesting Um, you know like like whether or not and obviously i'm not the character jackie brown elevates the entire film but i mean hell she's it's the name of the movie but like whether or not that aspect was at the time a detriment whereas had it been years later the film would have been going gangbusters like with kill bill yeah you know that's a good question i feel like um well, first of all, yeah, I didn't realize that. And I, I'm, you know, looking at the poster, it's a uh, two black leads essentially, Sam Jackson and Pam Greer. But um, it is an interesting question. I think. Let's see. I, I, I had was of the mindset that it just kind of got lost in all the good movies of the late '90s or all the popular mm-hmm. movies. But it is. I, I think it is kind of like a, I wouldn't call it. It is kind of a slower burn, not the slowest burn, but. 
it is kind of a slow burn uh, for Tarantino coming off. You know, it's funny you look at Reservoir Dogs and you're just like, well, all they did was talk, you know. But there's <laughs> enough action in Reservoir Dogs to like sate the appetite of action moviegoers, you know, and also, um, you know, keep them entertained in between. And, and then Pulp Fiction, you know, Pulp Fiction. No, no words need to be said about uh, the master class of film that is. You know, even as a non-pretentious film major, to describe how good it is, but <laughs> I think with Jackie Brown, I think, you know, I have to say the title, I feel like is already kind of off-putting to people because you're just like, what is this biopic about, you know, who is Jackie Brown? Like he didn't make a, like Jackie Brown's not like a historical uh, figure. She's not very, it's not like a a famous fictional character. It's not even like Foxy Brown, for instance, like, Mm -hmm. and I, I hadn't seen Foxy Brown, but to name that in passing, I at least recognize. I think the name Jackie Brown doesn't really tell you a lot about what the movie is. And um, I have to stay, say, even in the movie, where we literally just said a minute ago, the stakes do feel pretty high. I think from the outset, it's kind of hard. That I, I do have to say, like, it might not match the stakes of a Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, where... Um, those movies, it just Reservoir Dogs. You know, you have multiple cops getting killed, and you know, organized crime figures fighting amongst themselves. And then in mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, you have all the craziness of Pulp Fiction, which involves strange, stranger, strange people who are strangers getting murdered. And in Jackie Brown, you don't have like civilians really who die. The deaths are not dramatic. I think when people die in this movie, they just get shot. There's really not blood. I, I, I want to say you really don't see a lot of blood in this movie either. It, uh, the violence in this movie can be PG-13, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, actually, never mind. When Robert De Niro gets killed in, in, in the car, it, you do see blood. But again, yeah, um, the violence is not really drawn out. This movie will never be criticized for being too violent. In fact, it's the opposite. It's really understated. But... Yeah, I think it just got lost in the mix of good movies. And I think it just doesn't match the same energy as Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And even for that matter, Dust Till Dawn and maybe all the Tarantino-verse type stuff he, he, he was doing at the time. With this film, it is much more of a singular character-driven story, whereas the previous two films were ensembles. And obviously, this movie, it still feels like an ensemble film. The fact that the title of the film is named after the lead character. In essence, there is a lead character in this, whereas, in the, again, in the other films, it's more like, who is the lead character? Yeah. It, maybe, I don't know, maybe that had some impact as well, where people were so used to the kind of razzle-frazzle nature of watching a bunch of actors just scream at each other or kill each other or put needles in each other's chests in the other films that to see something that was a little bit more more of a singular narrative maybe because again you also brought up a good point when it comes to like sort of the tarantino verse films uh which i don't know how much i would throw it in there just because you know i i think he, he certainly inspired this movie and he is briefly in it but like desperado like which i adore that film that's a very character driven story I think too, that's what helped with this film was like, I could see a lot of the parallels with Mariachi trying to get out of his situation in Desperado. And then Jackie Brown just being like, I just, this is his last job. And then like 
try and get out from underneath this crazy guy. It doesn't have the the stylized revenge story that something like Kill Bill does, um, which, you know, I think I've said it before. I'm not too I'm not too big of a Kill Bill fan. Hmm. Um, first movie I'm OK with. Second movie, I I've just never cared for it. I don't know why. And again, it's it's always been a love hate thing with for me with Tarantino, because like, you know, Inglorious Bastards, I couldn't tell you how both hilarious, but also one, how wonderful it was when um, there was a, a family I knew of growing up. And this was because I knew their their daughters going to junior high and high school. Um, and the family was Jewish. A lot of their family members died during the Holocaust. So Inglorious Bastards comes out. That was their Christmas movie was Inglorious Bastards. Oof. Watching the movie and especially, you know, being a little bit older, knowing more history, but also getting more of a, more of a kick out of all the actors in the film, just yucking it up while also killing Nazis. Um, it's, it makes for a good time. Um, and Django Unchained, like eh, there's some of it that's kind of contrived and, and Tarantino showing up with an Australian accent was kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> and hateful eight. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't hateful eight was like, okay, this is, I love Kurt Russell, and I, I the rest of the cast was fine, but I, I, I reached a point with that movie where I'm like, oh, I, I'm going to bed. Um, so, yeah, so. yeah, totally. And, you know, and speaking of slow burns, like, it's just like, what happened? <laughs> There's a line actually from the movie that's relevant uh, before Sam Jackson kills uh, Robert De Niro for screwing up the mission and killing... Melanie, he says, what happened to you, man? You used to be beautiful. And it's just like, uh, when you describe uh, what happened with the Hateful Eight, and obviously once upon a time, I guess there's a bit of a rebound there, but when the Hateful Eight is like, yeah, man, what happened to you? You used to be beautiful. And that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> and because um, that was a slog. That was a slow burn. I don't remember any other marquee movie being split up into a miniseries on Netflix because it was so long. <laughs> So that movie, maybe we can have a podcast bashing it. But yeah, if you watch something like Jackie Brown, you know, I think easily could have been drawn out and been a slog. But, you know, when you compare it to his filmography, yeah, it's like stark contrast. The Hateful Eight could have taken some lessons from how nice and clean cut Jackie Brown was. Because, um, you know, I guess putting it in the context of Tarantino, I guess all his movies kind of are on the longer side, but none of mm -hmm. them, obviously outside of Hateful, felt like too much like a slog, you know, but they are all on the lengthier side. And it's it's funny, we'll have to revisit Kill Bill, but I wonder if it's because maybe the, the vibe didn't land with you because like Kill Bill is like what, an homage to, uh, okay, an homage to martial arts movies and things like that. And, and you know, that's the thing too, like with Jackie Brown, I feel like there was, I guess other than the Tarantino spin and the black exploitation, like kind of homage, like um, it didn't feel, I wonder if you feel like maybe this is almost like a contrast to Kill Bill where Kill Bill felt like, um, like a parody or something like that. Like, I wonder, cause, cause there's not like a lot of like laughs for instance in Jackie Brown, where mm -hmm. I do feel like some of his other movies, he goes for the laughs and I feel like it doesn't land as much. That might be it. Um, because and I think that's what's so funny with my uh, seat change with Jackie Brown is that 
that was my, I think one of my criticisms the first time I saw it was, man, it's slow. This time around, I'm like, wow, this is the, this is the kind of slow burn I miss in movies that come out these days. Like it, it, it didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was on a roller coaster or I'm on this, you know, stylized revenge tour, like, you know, like with Kill Bill, but the fact that it wasn't tropey in a way, like that's the, I think that's my other problem too with some of his other movies is that they do fall into very basic tropes. And I think too, with hateful eight I, growing up, I was over inundated with Westerns. Um, part of that was my own fault because in my early days of getting, of being interested in history and especially American history, I watched way too many Westerns. And and mainly it was because I was I was always on the lookout for instances that talked talked about or touched upon indigenous history where, you know, like there, I know there was some John Wayne movie where they brief, you know, somebody's playing an extra is playing Geronimo. And I thought it was so cool, but it's like at the end of the day, it's just a sleepy black and white Western. Mm-hmm. And with Hateful Eight, it was like. Okay, Tarantino wants to stay in the, the Western sandbox. Fine. I'm open for it. But I don't know. It got to a point between the blood and the whole thing with Sam Jackson and Bruce Dern's kid. I that that was the that was like the point of no return for me. Whereas again with this, like nobody feels like a caricature. Nobody feels like an overdrawn out, overblown character. You know, or, or or a caricature of a character for that matter. You know, it's it's not. I'm not going to make a Pirates of the Caribbean reference because it's way too topical for what's going on in the news. But <laughs> like, you get my point. Like it's it, you know, Sam Jackson feels like a character, whereas now when I see him in a Tarantino movie like Hateful Eight or Django, he's either playing somebody that's bordering on a stereotype, and I get why they're making him a stereotype. Or it's like, okay, Sam Jackson's in my Western. We got to duke him out as Western-y as we can. There's that great scene. I forgot who he's on the phone with. Um, I think he's on the phone with Cherry. And the camera just zooms in on the back of his head. Like, you don't see his face. You just hear oh, Sam yeah. Jackson's mm-hmm. voice. And again, you want to be kind of, you want to be reassured because you like Sam Jackson. You've seen him in movies. He's everybody's favorite one-eyed jedi or whatever but there's something about that moment where the way that zoom on the back of his head there's something just chilling because you just get this feeling that this is a guy who's at his breaking point and he is not going to take any more prisoners and that even goes so far as to you know threatening max cherry if uh, if Winston is at the bail bonds place when we go see Jackie, you're the first to go. You know, things go wrong and it hits the fan. You're the first to go. I don't care. You know, you better be telling me the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You know, any last words? And obviously it's played off really well when Max Cherry's calm, cool, and collected. Like, yeah, dude, all you're going to see is, and he doesn't say that, but he's, you get mm-hmm. it from him that you're only going to find Jackie. Until it's too late, obviously, um, which I guess at that point we're spoiling 
It, I mean, we spoiled all over the place with this movie, <laughs> but, you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, I know, it's a good point. I'd like to mention that shot, too, because, again, yeah, when we talk about the stakes being significant, and then, yeah, that shot, it's just like, when's the last time you were ever scared of Sam Jackson doing something his character wasn't supposed to do? Because you, you mm-hmm. I love how you just said, like, at the end of his stick, because essentially that's what it is. And, yeah, um, I think it also does a lot of, you know, not justice, like, what is it? It does a lot of character... It, it does a really good job of like he, like letting you know that like Max Cherry is so calm, cool, and collected that he can convince uh, Sam Jackson's character to like ride in the car with him to the place and like not shoot him. And they even bond over the soundtrack of the movie, I guess kind of a little tongue in cheek, like the song, a song that plays in the movie as the main soundtrack characters talk about it. It's one of those deals. And uh, yeah, it's all played off very smoothly, but um, yeah, Sam Jackson, this is definitely one of his, I guess, scarier roles. And uh, it's funny that you said no character feels like self-parody because I feel like Michael Keaton kind of gets the closest to it. But yeah. then this is before Keaton. Well, he was already like famous, of course. But mm-hmm. um, I guess this is before he's got... I, I don't think he's ever been flanderized, but uh, I feel like I saw this, maybe even bits and pieces when it came out in the 90s, it was on TV or something. Like, I feel like even before I really understood who Michael Keaton was, I could kind of tell that he was some sort of like, like, is, it's just like, is that how he always acts? Like, you know, like, <laughs> is this how he always is? Cause like, uh, I think the first, it's funny cause I'm looking at his filmography and yeah, like growing up, obviously Batman, but um, I didn't see Batman as early as other people. And I, I think my first exposure to him was Jack Frost, which came out a year after Jackie Brown. So I think, yeah, so I think I remember seeing Jackie Brown on TV and then like, like early on, I was watching it with my dad or something and like, um, he came on the screen and I just remember as a kid just thinking like, what's up with this guy? Like, so (laughs) I feel like that is kind of the closest to being like, kind of like a fourth wall breaking or self parody. But even then, like, it never went too overboard. He's just having fun with it. Uh, hey, Jackie, uh, do, do you mind if I turn into a snowman for a second? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's well, and and what's funny too is um, during this whole time period, he was almost almost Batman for a third time, and because Tim Burton was no longer well, because Tim Burton was no longer director, he was still involved. Um, that pretty much led to the walkout of. Keaton not reprising the role that year in 95. And obviously that would probably mean if they were, I would imagine they were filming this in 94. So talk about a Batman three was likely going on simultaneously. I mean, it's weird too, because it, it, it takes you into that. What if category of, you know, well, what if uh, Keaton pursued the third Batman film? Would he even have been in Jackie Brown? And and you could extend that too with Robert De Niro, like because that's the oddity and and the beauty with this and Pulp Fiction is that both these films resuscitated a lot of these careers that just went completely stagnant, like John Travolta, Pam Greer, Robert Forster. De Niro wasn't at that. He never really. And I guess now you could kind of say he's in a in a bit of a lull with his career, but it wasn't like he was in any need of his career didn't need a facelift at that point. Um, although I will, I will note too, 
I got a laugh out of all the jokes and complaints coming from Lewis about being old. Yeah. Because then it made me think about the Irishman where he's supposed to be playing somebody in between our age at one point. Yeah. And that's a good 25 years later. And I'm like, boy, you think you're old now? Wait until you're 29. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's so funny that you bring up the Irishman because I know the, the, uh, what is it? When he beats up the store clerk and he's like seven mm -hmm. years old. And yeah. So, uh, supposed to be memory. like 29 in that scene. Oh. Yeah. Or like when he, uh, when he's like driving the truck and he's talking to, um, Joe Pesci and, uh, he looks like he's 45 and Joe Pesci's like, Hey kid. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. um, unintentionally hilarious. Um, but it is funny you mentioned his age in this film too, because he does look scruffy and I realize he's supposed to just get out of prison, but like, wonder how old he was in when this was made because he definitely looks older yeah this is like on i guess on the cusp of his i don't know what his career transition was and like yeah and then it's not like he needed to do jackie brown the same way that john travolta needed pulp fiction it's not like robert mm -hmm. de niro needed this movie the same way john travolta did so still definitely the most curious casting choice yeah and and i i just check to see he was he was in his early 50s when jackie brown came out so sounds about right now it's got me wondering when heat came out because i mean he he still looks pretty good and pretty clean cut uh wikipedia everybody i'm gonna fill in some time saying ryan's looking on, oh wow that's interesting okay so heat came out the same year oh wow and casino yeah, huge, huge year for, well, for, of course, the people in this movie. But, like, yeah, like, it's just, like, no wonder Jackie Brown got lost in the mix because I wouldn't even, I would give, like, I wouldn't even say, like, oh, well, 1997 versus 1995. Like, those movies are still, like, in the collective consciousness. So I think, yeah, it's it definitely gets lost in the mix. And uh, just looking at the rest of the cast here, you know, you had Sid Haig as the judge. People that know about, uh, oh God, what was it? The Devil's Rejects. That was a movie I was yeah exposed to in my teen years, and and I regret. I think that was at a point in my life where like I dabbled with the idea of watching horror, and then I saw it, and I was like, eh, yeah, this isn't for me. Um, and then fast forward to 2019, and I'm like gushing about Exorcist three and whatever. <laughs> um, Denise Crosby is the public defender. She was of course in. Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, she was Tasha Yar. She gets horribly, well, not not horribly, but um, unceremoniously killed off in, like, the first season of that show. Mm. Uh, so it was it was one of those things where I saw her and I was like, oh, hey, look, the, the goo monster uh, didn't kill her this time. Um, and then I guess Danny DeVito has an appearance or a role in the film as the man getting his bag. Huh? Really? Wow. Okay. Is it, and that's, uh, we're talking about Jackie Brown, right? Yeah. Let me, let me see who the heck, cause that's just it. I was on the lookout for him and I could never, ever find him. I had never heard of that before as, as cast goes. Um, you know, I know there's not a ton of people in the movie, but that's a wild one. I'm not even seeing a result on Google Images. That's weird. You know, we can go in circles going on and on about the cast, but a couple other points that I noted. Uh, $3.25 for a screwdriver? 
Wow. That's Cordell got lucky in that in that bar where he meets up with Jackie and and the the bartender tells him how much <laughs> yeah. it is. Like 325. Just... Damn. Oh yeah. And uh <laughs> that's why I, 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 I that's why I kind of love how like it's kind of ambiguous as to what time period it is. I mean, I'm sure screwdrivers at a bar near the airport were that cheap at that time, but <laughs> I just love how ambiguous it kind of is like that. So <laughs> that yeah it definitely there's some moments like there's also in the beginning of the movie he tells chris tucker that he's going to take him to eat somewhere if he helps him do some tasks i forget the restaurant he tells him to but it's a restaurant that still exists uh isn't it roscoe's is it roscoe's it might be it's definitely like a total like la uh place but yeah like he's just like please help me um yep roscoe's so uh (laughs) yeah roscoe's chicken and waffles on me uh, uh, that SCO special smothered in gravy and onions, set of red beans and some greens. That's some good eating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is. Um, and for a Tarantino movie, I don't know if it's the Tarantino movie tropes where like people always eat in his movies or if it's just Brad Pitt, I'm thinking. But um, yeah, it's the whenever there's a like people on a bar in this movie, it's always a vibe. So you know, going back to that vibe talk, it's a. Uh, <laughs> You want to feel like the characters do when they go to bars. It's not like all of the locations are either recognizable or, you know, in your face kind of landmarks. But it does make you think, yeah, I I don't live that far away. I'd be down to eat at some of those spots. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I still haven't been to a Roscoe's. Uh, I've driven by one. I I vividly remember. Um, Well, when I come to L.A., we'll have to go because I haven't either. Oh, wow. Okay. I have family members that have a weird thing about fried chicken with waffles, but honestly, like, I, I don't see what the issue is. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like a great breakfast, brunch, and lunch, the way I see it. <laughs> I mean, we have to get it, so yeah, of course. So, uh, again, going back to Wikipedia, it's curated, folks, so take a chill pill. Um, don't Don't come after me and Andrew for in wikipedia um but it says on here about out of sight while jackie brown was in production universal pictures was preparing to begin production on director steven soderbergh's out of sight an adaptation of the leonard novel of the same name that also features the character of ray nicolette and waited to see whom tarantino would cast as nicolette for jackie brown michael keaton was hesitant to take the part of ray nicolette even though tarantino really wanted him for it I added the really, that's my fault. <laughs> uh, that's because I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine Tarantino be like, you know, come on, Michael, I need you for this movie. I need you for this film. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure. It's, uh, uh, might be copaganda. Um, but <laughs> Keaton subsequently agreed to play Nicolette again in Out of Sight, uncredited, appearing in one brief scene. Although the legal rights to the character were held by Miramax and Tarantino, as Jackie Brown had been produced first. Tarantino insisted that the studio not charge Universal for using the character in Out of Sight, allowing the character's appearance without Miramax receiving financial compensation. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it's a, well, one, I know like the Spider-Man conversation has made me realize that characters are owned by movies, you know, uh, production companies. And that also kind of just blows my mind that, you know, there's money, of course, there's money negotiated when they're talking about characters and things, but 
um, it just makes this movie out of sight sound in, even more and more intriguing because uh, of the cast and Steven Soderbergh. Like, well, speaking of hidden gems with Jackie Brown, is like, is this a hidden gem? Because apparently, this also has great reviews. Like, what happened in the late '90s that all these <laughs> great films just fell through the cracks? Yeah, I mean, it's because it was the '90s and there was less. There was less of a, uh, I don't know, less of a consumer interest when it comes to like IPs that there was just so many movies that were either original or they were based on, you know, they were adaptations of books or short stories that it it produced, the, the decade itself produced so many hidden gems like a Jackie Brown or, you know, n- no one really talks about it as a, as a, pinnacle film of the 90s but like fear and loathing in las vegas like that's one of those 90s movies that it's so of its time but also as somebody that loves the source material it's such a great movie and just a visual masterpiece that it's like why doesn't this and jackie brown get a little bit more recognition i mean i don't know do you think that's it because of the lack of big studio blockbusters blinding everybody's uh view potentially i mean you know i think you kind of chuckled when you mentioned the name miramax and it's just like miramax definitely a throwback um oh yeah remember the bionicle movies kids (laughs) (laughs) oh god um uh, um yeah like i i just i'm curious like how it was marketed you know like you know, I feel like I haven't seen it. Like nowadays, like do we we watch film trailers? Yes, but like I don't know. I'm just like I'm, I'm curious if it's just the way it was marketed. Um, I remember watching like I guess I'm not really answering your question, but I remember watching Jackie Brown for the first time on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say in the, in the late '90s or early 2000s, maybe it was on HBO or something or whatever Miramax was affiliated with. But um, I'm not sure. Like I. <laughs> I honestly don't have an answer because I never, I guess I never really thought of it because I was just kind of silent into my like, well, I know about this and I love it. And if you don't, like, I'm not like, you know, like be there, be square type, like, uh, but it is, it is just peculiar to me. I, I've literally never met anybody else who even knows about this movie's existence. That's definitely Hmm. hyperbole, but like, if it's like very few and far between that people know about this movie and I'm sure somebody out there is just like, you guys need to watch out of sight. And just like, I've never heard of it until now, but um, I, I really don't know because I can't think of another instance like this, like, you know, like, Hey, have you, have you heard of fight club? Like, it's nothing like that. You know, let's just like, it's never on like a, on a must watch list. It's never listed. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously it's up there as like Pam Greer and Robert Forster's like best movies, but um yeah, I guess it's just kind of found this weird little niche, but um, I just, it, it is perplexing. Frequently, I only hear it within the context of Tarantino's other films. And I should note, too, very quickly that uh, just scrolling through the reception for this film, uh, it says here, Samuel L. Jackson, who appears frequently in Tarantino's films, named his character of Ordell Roby as one of his favorite roles, mm. which... That I love to hear just because I feel like, again, like you think of all of Jackson's other characters throughout his very long filmography, 
And it's hard for me to think of a character quite like this one that he's done. That's especially somebody as, as again, as scary. Like, that's just it. He's he's funny and he's cool, but he's also really terrifying. And the fact that, like, this was his favorite, one of his favorite roles. I mean, that's like, okay, that means you, that tells me a little bit more about, like, what you put into the character and what you saw in the script. But going back to the film's prevalent uh, prevalence, yeah, I mean, this discussion is really the first time I've gone in depth on Jackie Brown with anybody. And, and you're the first person I know who's said this is one of their favorite films, if not their favorite. So... You know, I, it's it's just I don't know. It's something. There's something about this film. I and obviously we're talking about it. So when I say I can't get it out of my mind, it's like, yeah, Ryan, you're talking about it. But like, I I get this feeling that I'm going to be thinking about this movie for the rest of the week. Again, I can't explain it, and and I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm deprived because of films. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I, there's a part of me that's like, man, why couldn't this come out now? Like, I, I, it, I don't know. It's, I feel like it is helped because it is timeless. I mean, yeah, there's mentions of like beepers and things. And I think, you know, it's kind of obvious that it's nineties uh, with, you know, yeah, it has the seventies vibe going for it, but um i think it's you know just it feels timeless the 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 plot still feels timeless i know it's funny looking at the poster now and seeing like half a million dollars who's gonna get it and it's just like half a million dollars doesn't even buy like a house like (laughs) an hour hour away from downtown so like yeah like maybe nowadays the dollar figure doesn't seem crazy you know it doesn't seem like if you saw the plot if you saw like the dvd cover and you might just be like well okay um but Mm -hmm. um i just think what it has going for it is that it's timeless it's well made strong cast and uh yeah Uh, and of course you know it has some faults like again like how we've harked on like the weird robert de niro uh performance or character and um but yeah, I think it doesn't have any like really other glaring problems. I see, you know, something that there was a controversy over the use of the N-word. And mm-hmm. I realize, you know, Hateful Eight, Django, way worse examples of that. But I guess at the time, this was kind of like a like a whoa type moment. But if that's kind of like the movie's biggest flaw, uh, and I don't want to get into that discussion, but I think like if that's kind of the movie's biggest flaw, like we don't, it's never, I don't think anyone criticized it for the runtime for the performances um yeah it's just well-rounded really well made i i'm biased though i'm gonna say that i don't see much faults if at all but um again full disclosure this is probably my favorite movie so um i'm gonna just be a cheerleader and i love that for you just because you know i i I don't know there's so much to take in from this movie and there's so much to have fun with it and especially seeing you resonate with it like that that i mean that might be part of the reason why i i'm obsessing with this film i mean and to some degree i think that was also why i loved clerks was because i knew this was sebastian's favorite movie and i think with both films i'm i'm i watched both of them trying to see like what it would be that you two would like about them and I mean, with this, it was like, oh, yeah, this is up Andrew's alley for sure. And I will say, too, before we wrap up, the whole the whole relationship with Jackie Brown and Max Cherry, I, there's something just 
wonderful about it. I, I don't know how else to describe it. There's something just very lovely when the two of them are, you know, talking to each other and they're getting close and that ending too. It's, I don't know. It, it, there's something that just pulls you in and you, you feel like something's grabbing onto your heart every time. And maybe I'm just, I'm no, I'm glad you brought it up because I think yeah. it's one of the biggest parts of why the movie's good. I think, you know, a big part of it is that um, it's, it's unconventional. So you're intrigued. You're just like, where's this going? Because Max Cherry, 10, 15 years older than Jackie, but Jackie, so there's still like a mutual respect. There's, I think what helps it is that there's a really strong mutual respect. Mm-hmm. Neither character kind of oversteps their boundaries. The romantic element is not too strong. Obviously, Max has a crush on her, but he never like tries to like make a move. He's and he, like he's helping her. It's think it's very well like portrayed very well. He's helping her out of the good of his heart. And mm-hmm. like he has a crush on her besides that. It's not like because you don't get the sense that he's helping her because he wants to get with her. So I feel like, um, and uh, as the end shows, uh, he was uh, as much as he liked her. He, the ending, I'm, I'm curious your take on the ending because, yeah, like I think the unorthodox situation, I think it's just a really original kind of, I don't even want to say love, it's a really original kind of romance story, but. Um, the ending is perplexing, and I just love how it's um, how it's not a happy ending. It's like um, so Pam, uh, Pam, uh, Jackie Brown wants to. Uh, she she's like, let's go to Madrid with all the money we got. You know, that, the money that they don't know about. And uh, Max Cherry declines, uh, and they they share their only kiss of the whole movie. And then she leaves, and he just kind of stares out the window, and his bail bond phone rings. What happens is. His bail bond phone rings as she's like, well, are you coming? And then can't say anything. He freezes and the answer is the phone. And she never even like looks disappointed. She is, but she doesn't like hate him. She doesn't smirk. She just is like, okay, then like, we'll just go on with our lives. And then like she sings the theme, the main song in the car and, you know, it's all artsy, but um, yeah, I, it's perplexing to me, but I think it works because it's unorthodox. But what did you think? I it's interesting with the ending because and maybe this was part of why I had an issue with it the first time I saw it and it it did kind of creep up a little bit upon rewatch where the ending felt very predictable what I was trying my best to do was take myself out of the mindset of I've seen a lot of movies with this kind of an ending before like I, I tried putting myself more in the mindset of ignore everything else. Like, Ryan, think about Tarantino's other movies, but don't think about other film tropes or other things that you're thinking, oh, I've seen that before. So seeing it in this is bleh. like, no, think of it like this is the first time you're seeing this whole movie in its entirety and you're not aware of, you know, film tropes, I guess. And mm-hmm. I, I think. There is that one part of me that still, despite loving this movie way more than I ever did previously, there is still that small part of me that's a little bit like, eh, it's, I've seen that a lot. I feel like they could have done more with the ending. But at the same time, with their relationship, given how it's just, it's, it's such a brimming relationship where you can tell they're just, and it's not even like they're flirting, but like, 
it's it's very subtle flirting between the two of them mm-hmm. and just all the looks that you see on their faces when they look at each other and you know especially the the look on Jackie's face at the very end of the film really I, I mean that that hit hard for me like that was I believe me I've 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 been in her shoes um yeah but it it's honestly I I prefer it like despite my reservations I prefer the ending as it is I prefer it just because the ending is very you know the rest of the movie isn't so overly emotional besides you know characters getting pissed off with each other so much so that I felt fine with the fact that you know what this is one of those loves that it's not it's not reciprocated probably the way that either of them wanted but it doesn't mean it's over like I I get the feeling that you know there's a world where they reunite after the events of the film hopefully I don't know I mean it's (laughs) I think too it's it's also just Robert Forster he's so lovable like as a character and you know the Max Cherry character is so lovable that when you see him look at Jackie and then you you know you hear how Jackie talks to him like when they're at her apartment talking about music like it's just you you're thinking to yourself like this is part of why we love movies is mm-hmm. watching these kinds of characters fall for each other and it's it is unorthodox because how they're falling in love is under really weird circumstances. Like, you know, one guy paid bail. He's a bail He's a bail bond guy who paid basically for this gal to get out of jail thanks to a gun runner. Like, that's... It's not normal. Um, so... Yeah. I, I can't recommend this movie enough. Before we wrap up, uh, out of 10, what would you give this movie? Huh. Um, I think I have to give this... Um, let's put an asterisk on it, but I'm going to say I give it a, I would give it a a nine. I mean, okay. (laughs) Yes, it is very biased, but I feel like, you know, Hey, it's all subjective. Right. So I'm just like, I love this movie for a ton of reasons. I think, you know, my, out of my unbiased. Okay. If I had to be more fair, I think I'll give it like, you know, like an, let's say like an 8.5 and 8.3 or something. And I don't want to get all granular there, but um, <laughs> to me, it's just like a solid movie uh, on so many levels. I, I love it. And I, I only discovered it many years later. And maybe it's a little bit elevated because if I discovered it so much, so many years later. And the reason it's not a 10 is because yeah, there, there's the weird things with the, what is Robert De Niro doing? Um, and uh, you know, it's not like, Citizen Kane in terms of like groundbreaking and you know what is what do you grade things on like Jackie Brown I don't think influenced anything much afterwards but I love how it just stands itself pretty strong so I'm gonna say I'm saying 8.5 probably be in the same ballpark as you I'm gonna say uh, an 8 out of 10 on that note uh, before we go listeners just want to tell y'all listen to Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah, it's you'll have a great day. Trust me. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio and Stitcher. 
Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Erberich, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs>